that I wouldn't make it through It wasn't any of you that said That I didn't look too good That I wouldn't do too good I never make it out the hood I want you to know that I'm doing so Good morning and welcome to episode 852 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus presented by our Patreon supporters and the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello, Sam. Howdy. Today we are talking about the Cubs, a franchise that has many famous fans. And in the second half of the show, Jeff Paternostro will be talking to one of them, John Darneal of the Mountain Goats. But we are... Wait, talking... wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Hang on, really? Yep. <laughs> wow. Phenomenal. That's really exciting. Yeah. Can I, I... No offense to our two wonderful are you guests, but I kind of... less excited about our I know, our I, first I, I sort of want to skip. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. All right, I take it back. All right, you're really putting the pressure on our first segment guests, who are the authors of the BP Annual Essay, as well as many writings about baseball. They wrote the book Paths to Glory. They wrote the more recent book, In Pursuit of Penance, which we have talked to them about on the podcast before. They are Mark Armour. Hey, Mark. Hey, how are you doing today? All right. And Daniel Levitt. Hey, Daniel. Good to be here. All right. So you guys have written a lot about baseball history and the way that front offices work and the way teams are built. And I'm curious about your review of how the Cubs have been built in that you know, a year ago, you ranked the the best 25 general managers in history. At the time, you had Theo Epstein as number 16. So has he climbed the list? And what has he done differently in Chicago than what he did in Boston? Well, I think uh, I don't have that essay in front of me. But when we when we ranked Epstein, I believe that we concluded our little article about him by saying that, you know, if he succeeds in Chicago, he's going to, he's going to vault up this list. And I think even then, even in a year ago now, there was a pretty much a growing sense that the Cubs were on the right track. And I think we just decided that we weren't really going to give Epstein credit for being on the right track until something happened. And I think that what happened last year counts as something happening. I think it's, if I was fairly sure they were on the right track a year ago, I think today, I think it's it's very obvious that they're on the right track and they're probably the best team in baseball. And I think Epstein, uh, more than anybody, deserves credit for that. So I think he's uh, absolutely vaulted up the list. I'll, and I'll take a stab at what he's might have done differently. You know, in Boston, I think he took advantage of the draft in the sense that he would let free agents go. He would purposely get free agents at mid-year or players that were going to become free agents at mid-year and let them go in order to accumulate the draft picks. With the last CBA collective bargaining agreement in 2012, that was really no longer an option anymore. And so I, I think that since 2012, he's obviously had to work differently with the Cubs, much more in the sense of the trades, looking for some of the international guys. Yeah. And Epstein was kind of always pretty upfront about how he was going to build the Cubs. And of course, it's more difficult to do than it is to say an outline. And he has followed through on that plan. But 
Is there a close historical comparison that, that comes to mind for the way that Epstein has built this team and has made young position players such as strength? Is there a previous baseball example that you can summon? I'm not sure that I can summon anybody at the moment. I mean, what is particularly interesting about this rebuild with the Cubs is that Epstein took over a team that was pretty bad, you know, pretty down and out. And I get the sense that when he took the job, that he was able to essentially go to it. I mean, he was in a position of of strength when he was negotiating because he had a job with the Red Sox, which was, I think most people would consider a good job. And in order to jump to the Cubs, I think he he basically got buy-in from ownership that he was going to build for the future and not be concerned about winning. And owners gave him a lot of rope. And I think the curse of so many general managers that are in the position that Epstein was in is that the ownership expects they're going to be interesting and competitive immediately. And I think Epstein convinced the ownership that he didn't have to do that. And they did suck for a few years. And it's kind of remarkable. I mean, a lot of things could have gone wrong, but what happened has happened in Chicago is pretty much exactly what Epstein said was going to happen or or said that he wanted to happen at right about the right time as well, maybe a little bit early. I think I think it's fairly unique in, in recent history that a GM has had this much power and has been able to essentially start from the bottom and almost build this team up one player at a time. The the comp that kind of comes to mind for me is the Indians of the um, early mid nineties, just in terms of having the same stockpile of, of young hitters, um, maybe to the detriment of their pitching, but the stockpile of young hitters. And even though it's a different way that the GM uh, exerted himself, it's a, similarly where you can really see the stamp of the GM on on the roster and, and on the ability to keep those young players, that young core together. And that was a pretty successful run for the team, though they didn't win a World Series. And maybe the Cubs fans would consider this an unsuccessful run if, if they follow the Indians model uh, all the way to the end. Well, I, I was just going to say the other analogy that I was thinking of was the was the big red machine, the Cincinnati Reds, but because of the concentration on the hitters as opposed to the pitchers. But I, I don't know that in either of those cases it was so conscious as it was here with Epstein. I mean, one of the things that you need to give Epstein credit for was that he it was it was a conscious decision that you know hitters are less volatile. It's easier to project them if you pick them in the first round. They're more likely to succeed, and so let's go out and look at the hitters. But regarding the Indians, I, I think that John Hart, who was the GM there, he did really you know two things. One is he he really started this process of signing guys to to longer term contracts when they were still pre free agent, and that was really something that he he began. I, I guess my take is that he. he he won two pennants. You know, they lost, you know, seventh game of the World Series on a in the ninth inning. I, you know, I mean, obviously the Cubs fans wants to win the World Series, but, you know, that was a pretty good run he had there in the 90s. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was a that is a great model. But for, you know, the flukes of postseason baseball. So the, the Cubs, you know, very it seemed very deliberately uh, invested in these young hitters. And there was really no answer to where the pitching was going to come from a couple of years ago. And I guess the feeling was that, well, you know, when when we get there, pitching will be available. And as it turned out, it sort of they made it look really easy. Like they have right now an extremely credible pitching staff. They have one of the three or four best pitchers in baseball. 
They have, you know, they were able to get two really strong number two, number three starters with big veteran postseason experience and great track records and workhorses without, in Lackey's case, only having to give him a two-year deal. They have, you know, some decent depth in the rotation. Are you surprised at how smoothly it came together or... Uh, do you think that they sort of saw that this wasn't it wasn't actually going to be that hard that maybe it's easier to get five pitchers when you need them than it is to get um, you know eight hitters plus depth? Well, I'd say it's a little bit of both. I mean, I don't think they thought it was going to be that easy. And in all fairness, I don't think anybody thought Arietta was going to turn out to be as good as he was. I mean, he, he was always you know sort of good in Baltimore, but you know it was always like, well, he can't seem to put it together. And obviously, he put it all together with the Cubs, but that he turned out as well as he did, you know, that's, I don't know that anybody could foresee that. Although of course you have to give him credit for getting him there. And I, and I, you know, I mean, I think that the two guys at the bottom of the rotation, they're three and four guys last year, they're four and five guys this year. And, you know, Jason Hamill and Kyle Hendricks are pretty good for the bottom of the order. And I think he did a nice job of uh, digging those guys out as well in a couple of trades. So at least uh, Hendricks came, came in a trade. So I, I, yeah, I think you have to be surprised how well it was, but you know, Lester, you know, I, I think Lester wasn't even as good as, you know, he could have been better. I mean, he was probably performed like a, you know, a two or a three as opposed to a number one, which, you know, that's, that's probably what they were paying him for. I think another thing that is perhaps not to be discounted is that, you know, Lester and Lackey, you know, both of them knew Epstein from Boston. And it seems to me that it wasn't really obvious that he that in, in a normal situation that Epstein would have gotten either of them. You know, Lester went down to the wire. I mean, they, they obviously emptied the vault for him, but he easily could have gone back to Boston. That was very close. And Lackey seemed to take less money to go to Chicago. So I think that it perhaps cannot be discounted that people want to play for the Cubs now. And uh, especially in Lackey's situation, I think – I think there seems to be an atmosphere there that Lackey wanted to be involved in. And some of that was probably that he and Lester are good friends. Yeah. Segwaying from Lackey, you could sort of make the case that all four of the players that they signed uh, this offseason, including uh, including Fowler, who they brought back, signed for deals that were surprisingly uh, frugal for some people. Like they, I, I would have predicted all four of those would have made more, more money than they did. When you've looked at you know teams of the past, pennant winners of the past, is there a reliable bandwagon effect where players want to play for these teams? Is it an advantage uh, for teams that are sort of seen as being on the brink that you can really identify as, as a uh, you know tangible benefit to being where the Cubs are? Well, one example I would give would be the Blue Jays in the early 90s. Uh, you know, they had just before they won the two World Series in 92 and 93, uh, they they sort of got over the hump by signing a number of veteran free agents, uh, Winfield and then Molitor. Uh, they signed uh, Dave Stewart. I'm trying to think of a couple other guys. They signed a number of them and uh, a number of sort of, I'll I'll put them like lackey where they were guys late in their careers, but who could clearly help a pennant winner and wanted, wanted to take a chance of getting that ring. So I I would say that the blue Jays of the early nineties would be a pretty good uh, comparable. In your essay, you, you kind of looked for some comparable teams that were built around young position players. What did you find about teams that are built that way? And and is that the way that you would go about building a team? Because, you know, there are smart, successful teams that have gone completely the other way. You know, maybe the Braves, for instance, seem to subscribe to the idea that pitchers are so unreliable that you have to stockpile those and build that way. 
and that you could maybe fill in the position players because they're easier to find. So you can find smart teams that believe opposite things. So which philosophy do you subscribe to? I think that if you can have a number of good young batters, I was surprised at how well the teams did. I mean, when we did the, when we did the study, I mean, we looked at teams that had a number of uh, good young good young hitters and how did they do compared to other teams with the same kind of record over the next few years. And they did surprisingly well. I mean, I think there was 12 teams and basically, you know, 10 of them did really well compared to other teams with similar records. Uh, including World Series wins and high, you know, high winning percentages in comparison. So I, I think that's a good way to go. The other thing that it does is, I mean, if you look at the Cubs payroll this year, it's still pretty modest because having these young guys under control allows you to go spend all this money in the offseason. I think they a total their their total outlay or in total will be 275 million for the four free agents they signed this offseason. And I just think that you couldn't do that if you had a payroll, if you were the Dodgers or the Yankees. And so having these young guys not only gives you the ability to have these guys grow and be good older players, it gives you the ability to go sign these free agents. Our BP colleague, Matt Trueblood wrote an article earlier this offseason was kind of controversial. It was sort of just a, a thought experiment because Theo Epstein's contract is expiring at the end of this season. And of course, he sounds like he wants to stay there for a long time. It sounds like they want him to stay there for a long time. He will probably stay there for a long time. But Matt kind of made the case that Epstein has come in. He's set up this system. The Cubs are are set for years now, seemingly. And since Epstein is probably going to be the, the highest paid general manager or team president when he is extended, maybe you can economize by just, you know, getting the brain power of that person for a few years and sort of leeching the, the best from him and then letting him go. What have you found about the continuity of front offices when sort of the visionary leaves are his successors usually able to sustain that success or is it really kind of the, the great man theory or great person theory of team building? Well, if you get back to the, the point we just talked about with the free agents that may or may not have, have come to the Cubs um, and maybe taken a little bit, a little bit less money, I certainly think that if Epstein left, especially if it was perceived that he left because the Cubs wanted him to leave, I think that would create enough of a firestorm and controversy within the organization and the media and whatnot that I think that would put a damper on the people beating their a path to the door of the Cubs. I don't know that there's really any precedent for someone to be really successful in the middle of a successful run and then leave not of his own accord. I guess I guess an example of someone who left sort of at the top was was Harry Dalton when he left the Orioles um, after the 1971 season. They they were clearly the best team in baseball, the best organization in baseball, the best farm system in baseball and he left because he wanted I guess mostly because he wanted a little bit more power, but I think he also wanted to uh, start over. And the Orioles kept the Orioles did pretty well for the next decade or so, and I think that they kept they kept their brain trust in, in place and sort of kept rolling. Yeah, and you sort of talked a, a little bit in your essay about the inexorable pull to 500, and of course there's the Bill James plexiglass principle about teams that improve their win total from one season to the next very dramatically tend to slip back the following year, and so you might think that about the Cubs and that they made this big leap. They won 97 games. Maybe they outplayed their their run differential a little bit to get there. And so they would fall into that 
category of teams that you would expect to decline the following year. But the projections expect them to be roughly as good as they were last year. And the projections theoretically should be building in that tendency to regression. So, you know, when you look at those big leap from year to year teams, you're going to get some that don't look all that great going into the season. And the Cubs really do look all that great coming into this year. So I, I don't know, is there any reason to sort of use those past teams that have made that kind of jump as a guide to what the Cubs are going to do this year? I, I would go with your second comment, which is that, you know, the projections and take all that into account. I mean, there isn't, you know, other than Arietta, it, it's hard to say that there's someone on that team that sort of had a career year last year that you think is going to fall back, you know, I, and I think that the free agents that they signed clearly, I mean, they added some, some real talent and I think they added it in the places they needed it, right? They, I think they had the third most strikeouts by batters in history last year. And the guys that they signed, Hayward and Zobrist in particular, are both pretty low strikeout guys. I mean, so they address that issue. I mean, I, I think that it's it's hard to see them. Re- I mean, you know, they may not win 97 games, but it's hard to see them not, you know, being really good. One of the reasons we riffed on that a little bit in the essay really has to do with the fact that it's the Cubs. And if you if I talk to some of my casual Cub fans, that ones that aren't really digging into the plexiglass principle, they almost don't want to hear how good their team is. And the reason is because they have felt this way a few times in the past. You know, they won ninety seven games in in two thousand and eight, uh, and you know they had you know really good teams couple of really good, decent teams in the 90s. The 84 Cubs were probably the best team in baseball, and they never capitalized on it. I mean, I, if you look at the current Cubs team, it's I think it's very – I agree with what you said, and I agree, I agree with Dan. I, I think that this is different. They're not like those other teams. They're, they've got young talent. Um, they've improved from last year in so many ways, but I think the, the point of that essay was more – you know, if if you're a Cubs fan, you can be forgiven for saying, let's wait and watch and see what happens. Yeah. And, you know, we haven't asked that much about specific offseason moves or dwelt that much on specific positions because it, it's really hard to pinpoint any weak point or, or to really reproach them for any move they made this offseason. It, it seems like everything they did made sense and made them better. And they are, you know, average or better just about everywhere. I mean, am I getting caught up in some sort of halo effect? Am I missing a weakness? Does either of you see a a spot on this roster that would fail under strain? (laughs) You know, the only thing that you could even talk about is the bullpen. I I mean, if you take the hitters, Every player on that team, except for Russell, had an on-base percentage of at least 345 last year. And they all, except for Russell, they all slugged at least 400. I mean, it is a, and, and he's a guy who could get a lot better. I mean, that is a really deep lineup, one through nine. And that doesn't even include guys like Baez and Soler, who, you know, two years ago were viewed as the up-and-coming stars. You know, the bullpen, you know, you, you guys, I mean, Rendon, is, you know, sort of more middle middle of the pack in terms of a closer. And I don't think they're as deep there, but I got to believe that they, they're going to be able to find, you know, a pretty decent bullpen when all is said and done. Yeah, I, I think I think that as a historian or a amateur historian, that I look at the, a team like the Cubs and I see a team that really could be a great team. And one one such as we haven't really seen in a while. And saying that, 
a lot of things can go wrong, as they usually do. And, and I think that the projections I've seen for the Cubs, which is they're going to win – you know, 95 or 98 games is probably right. But I think, you know, a few things go right and they could win more than that. They could win 110 games. And this is, this is a team that, you know, I, I see, you know, if a couple of those starters, especially Lester and Lackey kind of stay healthy and, and maybe get at the, at the upper end of their Pocota range, you know, this is this is a great team. All right. Well, we have pinned down all of our previous guests to specific win totals. So I, I suppose we will do the same for you. So can each of you give me a number that you expect the Cubs to get to this season? Well, you know, I, I'm, an, I'm, I'm like Mark. I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb. I mean, there's a ton of things that could go wrong. Pitchers get hurt, but I'm going to go with 101. Yeah, I, I will say uh, 103. All right. Well, those are very high numbers, <laughs> but yeah. I, I can see why you say them. All right. Well, that is it for the, the first segment. You can find more information about Mark and Dan on their website, pursuitofpenance.com. You can get their books, Path to Glory and In Pursuit of Penance, as well as finding out about many of the other things that they've written on that site. Thank you guys for joining us. Thank you for having us. Our pleasure. Thanks. All right. And now stay tuned after the musical break, which also comes courtesy of John Darniel for John Darniel talking to Jeff Paternostro. And the Chicago Cubs will beat every team in the league. And the Tampa Bay Bucks will take it all the way to the top. And I will love you again. I will love you like I used to. second half of our Effectively Wild Cubs preview, we are joined by novelist, musician, death metal expert, and Cubs fan John Darniel. You might know him best as the man behind the Mountain Goats. We will not be talking about his usual array of doomed protagonists in this... In- oh, wait, we probably will be. Anyway, John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much. So the Cubs made the playoffs last year, so to use a rather stale beat writer cliche, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the thing is, like, uh, that was... <laughs> they went down pretty fast. It was cool, you know, at the same time, it's like a sort of, this Cubs that they're putting together, it feels sort of like a, a very modern baseball team where it's like not, I'm pretty old school. I like teams. I like teams where I, you know, where I can recite the lineup. The 90s Cubs stayed together for a long time. They were not the greatest Cubs of all time, but the Mark Grace, Mickey Morandini, Sosi, Gary Gaeta Cubs, you know, they had a very, they, they had a lot of personality. This Cubs has a lot of big bats. I would really like to see them keep the team together however it does, you know. So I will say in the past, you have been critical of the Cubs dealing some of their better veterans for the young talent. That's now the core of the 2016. The Marger, that was a huge moment for me. <laughs> I was very still angry about the Marger. So what worried you about those moves at the time? Um, it's character. It's like, I, this is where I'm pretty, you know, I know we live in an age of stats and, uh, and, and stuff like that. I don't think a lot of people, I think my values are pretty outdated in, in a lot of sports, which is I, I like teams to have character. I like, I like to be able to, to feel like I'm not just backing a winner, but I'm backing a team, you know, whose, whose players know each other in some sense. I mean, I know they're all, you know, they're not the most relatable dudes in terms of their lives. But when you deal with Alex Marja, he had immense amounts of character as a player, right? He was a, he's, he's an exciting player to have on the mound, even if his numbers aren't so great. He, he adds a lot of value just to the team as a team you can follow, because if we're just putting together numbers, I can do that with a video game, right? And so 
So what I like is for a team to have a real character. That's that's somebody, you know, a team you can know. That's something I enjoy in sports. Um, it could be because I'm also a boxing fan. It's like characters and storylines and stuff are, are part of the of the game for me, you know. And uh, and the stories you remember are the players sort of working with each other, not just putting up numbers, right? So, so Samarja was a super likable pitcher, even if he had a bad day. He had crazy amounts of character on the mound, and it was it, it struck me as a kind of a, a cynical deal, you know. Although I had all that all my stats friendly friends tell me. This is a great deal. You should not be mad. And in fact, the team we're putting on the field this year has amazing numbers. I hope that they also have amazing character. So on to the 2016 team. Expectations are high after their success in 2015 and their subsequent offseason moves. Well, 2015 might have been a bit of a surprise, or at least came a bit ahead of schedule. As a fan, how are you handling the higher expectations on the team? Uh, I am I am the naysayer, although <laughs> they are the only team, is that right, that's projected to win more than 100 games, which is just nutty from where I stand. It's like, this is not a position as a Cubs fan that I have really ever been in before. These are very unfamiliar waters. But uh, but I'm always, you know, I have been around for high expectations before, but at the same time, it's like this is a, it's, the stats are there. The numbers are there. This is a, this is a team with a lot of big bats and good pitching. Um, there's some good pitching with some health questions. Health questions, when they hit the Cubs, tend to hit them hard. So we will see. I think projecting a team to win 100 games ahead of the season is, uh, you know, doesn't take into account how long a baseball season is. There's a there's a lot of intangibles to consider when you're when you're looking at a long season. But uh, they look good. I mean, I think we'll still be talking about the Cubs after the All Star break for sure. So your last full length beat the champ is all about the pro wrestlers, the territorial days in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s. At first, I thought it was maybe an odd subject for one of your albums, but it actually fits well with your usual protagonists, you know, vagabonds and seekers experiencing moments of joy despite a longer timeline of eventual doom. Is it fair to say that fits with being a Cubs fan as well? Somewhat. I and mean, with the Cubs, it's, it's a much longer arc because you, know, you don't have this organizational culture in wrestling. You sort of do now with, with the McMahons and so forth. But wrestling promotions, you know, in Southern California, the one I was watching, but also all the regional ones, sort of fly-by-night operations operating for 7 to 12 years and then changing hands and so forth, whereas... With the Cubs, you have this lasting, this very long story arc of a team that was once an extraordinarily good team, and then that sort of had this corporate culture of not spending enough money for a long time, of pocketing most of the money. They're spending money now, uh, which is great, you know. But it's 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 a little different with the Cubs, and it's more of a it's more of an epic than you know than in the case of wrestling. It's more like you know a short story collection or a number of short story collections. So I have a theory that every fan has a guy who maybe isn't the best player on the team and certainly isn't the most important player, but one that they just feel a connection with and maybe root for more than the others. You've already talked about Jeff Samarja a little bit. Who's your guy on the 2016 Cubs? I mean, I don't have a guy on the 2016 Cubs. I haven't followed that closely. You know, I like Bryant a lot, and uh, but, uh, but I mean, my, my all-time Cub is Mark Grace, right? That's the guy who, when they dealt him, there was a crushing blow to me because, sure, he was near the end of his career and he probably wanted to go to Arizona, but he was the heart and soul of that team. I don't know who the heart and soul of the 2016 Cubs is. I don't feel like there is a Mark Grace on the team right now. I hope one emerges during the season, but, but I, don't really, I don't really have a guy right now. In the past, you've said the Cubs will never win a World Series in your lifetime, despite you predicting <laughs> them to win it every year. Would you like to change yeah. either of those predictions this season? So I would like to make two predictions. Uh, they'll sound familiar to people who've heard the ones I've already made. I would like to predict the Cubs will destroy the NL Central this year and win the World Series. 
And I would also like to say that the Cubs will not win the World Series this year. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I will be very surprised if they make it to the big show. I have to say everybody thinks that that's going to happen. I think the playoffs, generally speaking, you can't be thinking about how they're going to go in the preseason. I think the Cubs will remain competitive throughout this season. I think they'll finish over 500. I mean, I think that's a pretty conservative prediction. That's as far as I'm really willing to go. The postseason is a place that, again, when I talk about teams having character, that's where having been there before, having been there a lot, makes a big difference. You watch hockey, you see the Red Wings get the postseason. It doesn't matter how they looked in the regular season. They have a good chance of winning the Stanley Cup if they make the postseason. The Cubs, I don't think, have really that culture of, of knowing what, what to do in the postseason. I don't think it's just playing baseball games. I think there's a, there's a whole separate way of being once you get there. But this team has a lot of young guys who are really good and have a lot of stamina, so I expect to see them looking pretty good come September. All right, hypothetically, let's say the Cubs do win the World Series this season. The usual question yeah. that gets asked here is, how do you think Chicago would respond? But I'm more curious about what you think <laughs> happens to Cubs fans after, you know, once the beer dries and they pick up all the confetti off Waveland Avenue. What is it? Does it change the team psyche like a year from now, two years from now? I, you know, I don't think, I mean, I think to some extent, but I don't think there's a lot of people who, you know, there used to be a going line where people say, well, Cubs fans don't want the Cubs to win because then they'll lose their identity. I don't think that's true. But I think every Cubs fan wants to see the Cubs win, right? And, uh, and we like it when, you know this, because if you go to a game and the Cubs win, everybody's happy. Nobody, nobody wants them to lose, right? It would be strange because then the Cubs sort of a big part of their story, you know, then goes into history. But it's still history. It's still part of the team. The long drought is all you talk about, you know. But, uh, but I don't think it would change. It's, you know, the thing is like, the biggest part of being a Cub fan is going to Wrigley Field, right? Going to one of the greatest ballparks in the history of the game. Making a lot of changes there right now, but it's still a great place. And, uh, you know, that's what the Cubs are about, watching the Cubs play at Wrigley Field. That's the real story with the Cubs. It's much less about whether they win or lose than being able to watch this great game in such a great temple of baseball. So you've written the second most famous song about the Chicago Cubs, probably trailing only Go Cubs Go. Can you tell us a bit about wow. how Cubs in Five came about? So, um, Cubs in Five... I will confess that it was a somewhat autobiographical song when uh, when I was thinking of somebody who I'd been seeing and who I was like ready to to bid farewell to, and I was thinking, you know, it's just a series of counter conditionals, right? About all these things will happen before we are together again, right? Tampa Bay was a terrible football team at the time, and the Cubs were not in their in their glory years at all. This was uh, this is was one of many many rebuilding seasons for the Cubs. So. So I was just writing a series of counter conditionals and things that were never, ever, ever going to happen that would happen before I wound up back on the scene with a, with a, with a partner of mine. And I put it in really absurd conditions because I generally don't do confessional stuff. I don't want people to think they should have to care about my love life or anything like that. So it was an absurd, completely over-the-top thing. You know, I, it was weird last year to have people yelling for it when the Cubs were competitive. I pretty much refused to play it all year long because, uh, you know, I try not to, I don't really like jinx talking stuff like that, but to me that's not really baseball. But then I had a real superstitious urge, like, you know, don't don't play the song about how the Cubs are always going to lose when they're actually doing pretty good this year. So so I don't expect to hear too much of it this year, but at the same time it's kind of funny now to be singing about a team that, you know, that the main thing was you can get the bleachers for cheap and watch a ball game. You know, and now, like, they're a big team like everybody else, which is, you know, it's a different time. So you're off on tour next month, and this tour seems like it's going to be a little different than some of your more recent ones. What's the plan? So we did this show at City Winery in New York on the Beat Chant Tour last year, and we played two nights. And the first night, we uh, we played just our normal set. It was fun. 
And then we showed up to do this video session that they do in the cellar there among the wine barrels. Couldn't really lug all the gear down there. So we, uh, so we just stripped down. I think John Worcester just played a snare drum, right? And, uh, and I didn't use, uh, I didn't plug my guitar in anything. I just played it, right? And so it was, it was very, it was a natural sort of musical setting. And it sounded really good. I said, let's do the set that way. Let's strip the drum kit down to bare essentials and let's pare everything down and see what it sounds like. And it was a super special show. So when we started looking at what we we're going to do this year, I said, why don't we tour that set? Not the exact same songs, but strip the drum kit down, strip everything down, right? And play quieter, play longer, right? And be a little looser, you know, in a more kind of a listener's set, you know, that, that instead of going out and touring the record and trying to tear everything down and finish the gigantic, big, blooming numbers, instead just play the songs, you know, and sort of be together in smaller rooms and be really intimate. And it should be really fun. There's a couple of bigger rooms on the routing where, where there wasn't a we're in a place to do that, so we will probably pull out the, out the big booms a couple times. <laughs> but for the most part, these are long sets that are about songs and storytelling and listening to each other play. That sounds really cool, and I will be there in New Haven listening attentively instead of shouting oh, along cool. like I, I usually we'll do. Oh, cool. have pizza together, because that's a good pizza town. It is a very good pizza town. Sally's is my, uh, is my yeah, jam. A modern is my, is my place. Modern, modern's good, too. Yeah. I actually haven't tried Sally's now. I'm not going to write this down. <laughs> Last time I was there, I was there for like all of... 10 hours and I had to ask our, our, our person like, tell me which are the pizzas I need to eat I heard this is a legendary pizza town and we just messed up two before the show and two after <laughs> John Darniel singer and songwriter for the Mountain Goats you can catch them on tour over the coming months for info on dates visit mountain-goats.com you can also check out Be the Champ and the rest of his music at mergerecords.com and you can follow him on Twitter at mountain underscore goats John thanks for coming on thank you so much all right, that's it for the Cubs preview. Thank you to Mark Armour, Dan Levitt, and John Darneal. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild and becoming a patron. Five people who have done that already, Dylan DeThomas, John Sludden, Rob Hamilton, Dan Skoktopol, and Sandy Cantor. Thank you. You can also buy our book, which is called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. It comes out on May 3rd. And you can pre-order it now on Amazon and Barnes & Noble to potentially get it before that official publication date. It features a couple of Darnielle-esque protagonists, namely me and Sam, and our efforts to turn an independent league team in Sonoma into a model of sabermetric efficiency last summer. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. You can rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. And you can email us at podcast at baseballperspectus.com or contact us by messaging us through Patreon. You're listening to the band Earth Girls, which features one of our listeners, Liz Pinella. It's a Chicago garage punk power pop band. And Liz is a third generation Cubs fan. Based on my limited listening, Earth Girls are really good. So I will link to their Bandcamp page. They have an LP coming out and they'll be touring to support it. And the song you're listening to is called Wrong Side of History, which is very appropriate for the team that we talked about today. If you are a listener in a band and you'd like us to play your song, ideally with some sort of tangential connection to a topic we're talking about, send me your music at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. You can get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription to the Baseball Reference Play Index by using the coupon code EP when you subscribe at baseballreference.com. We have one more preview to go before the end of our preview series and the end of the offseason. So we will be back with that episode tomorrow about the Los Angeles Dodgers. (laughs) 